This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And just like that, we're back yet another week. Welcome in, guys. Happy to have you with me, and I'm happy to be with you. This is Josh Pate. This is the Late Kick Extra podcast, our strictly mailbag Q&A interactive format that we do once a week. We release this on Wednesday, and it is your questions and my responses to your questions. Quick shout out and huge thank you. We're now over 300 five-star reviews, and this podcast has not been around that long. So that's gotten a lot of attention. Got some pats on the back during conference calls this week, which I attribute directly to you because we all know I can't vote for myself on these deals. So thank you for that. Got a ton of really good questions this week. If you could keep those five-star reviews coming, I've told you that I want to get us to a thousand and let's do it as quick as possible. The more good attention we get, the more good stuff that I'm allowed to bring your way. So thank you for that. A quick rundown on the format. And at this point, it's old hat. You know how it works. You submit the questions all week, joshpate706 at gmail.com at Late Kick Josh on Twitter. You can submit them in the comment section on the YouTube channel, several different ways to get at me, and I get to as many as I can, which in most cases is all of them. I just tailor how fast I have to talk, depending on how big a load of questions that we have that week, and we got a pretty jam-packed show right now. So let's get it started, and let's start it with Jeff. Really interesting question here. Jeff says, how prevalent is negative recruiting? Do recruits buy into that type of salesmanship? Are recruits wanting to hear more about what that coach in front of them can do for them, or are they more interested in listening to someone bash another program? Finally, if this type of negative recruiting takes place, what things are typically said? Jeff, it is pretty common, but there is a vast dichotomy between programs. Some of them don't do it at all. Some of them do it heavily. And then there are shades of gray. The most common form, and I was talking to a head coach about this a few days ago, the most common form is the falsified depth chart, or maybe it's an accurate depth chart. The falsified depth chart would be taking a depth chart of your opponent into a kid's living room, and it's not exactly on the up and up. There may be some guys listed that you know shouldn't be listed in certain positions, guys you know maybe have transferred, but they're still on the roster. But there's this other way to do it, and the other way to do it, to me, is a slap in the face of the spirit of competition. If you and I are recruiting against each other, Jeff, let's say you're at State U and I'm University of. And we're heads up for a five-star defensive end. And you have three really good defensive ends you just recruited in your last cycle. If I'm going to negative recruit you, quote unquote, I may take a depth chart into that kid's living room and say, look, they've already got some really good players at your position, whereas we don't. And I don't really even have to say it, but what I'm telling him is I'm promising him playing time at my place early on, whereas at your place, he's probably going to have to sit behind guys. Now, if you're an ultra competitor, if you're a type A competitor, then That works the opposite way. The depth chart that's loaded with talent appeals to you because you want to go compete against the best. You want to play against the best. You know that that's how you sharpen your skills. But if you do want the easier route, then I'm going to get you. 
But the question is, what are we trying to build? Championship caliber programs, right? At least if you want to compete at the highest level of the sport. And if you want to do that, a lot of the negative recruiting you'll find, it ends up backfiring on you. I've seen it happen. I've heard about it happening. Um, had some really good interaction with a coach just this week who's been at this game a long time about that sort of deal. Actually, I'm planning a feature maybe in the not too distant future, depending on how this season shakes out. More on that in just a second. And I think I got a lot of fun stuff for you guys to be able, as you know, I always tell you to be able to peel back that curtain and let you see as much behind the scenes about this sport that you and I love so much as you can. Next up, several people submitted a version of this question. You saw me tweet earlier in the week. It was uh, Monday, I believe. I tweeted that I was just feeling a lot of positive vibes about the direction of college football, the direction of football season in general. It felt like for a couple of weeks there, everything you read was either negative or really negative, and no one had much good to say. And so Monday, I said, hey, feeling some good vibes. And you guys just wanted me to go more in depth on this. And listen, here's what it's about. I keep saying the 595 rule for a reason. And the 595 rule, for those unfamiliar conceptually, is just my way of saying not very many people are leading right now. That's not necessarily a knock on their character. In some cases it is, but in some cases it's understanding that there are a lot of people out there who just don't really know a whole lot about infectious disease, but yet they have to make decisions directly related to what we're going to do because of this disease. And so they're sitting around waiting for other people to do something. And so all the while I've told you, don't be fooled into thinking when everything seems negative that it actually means everything is negative. The 595 rule is what the 5% say, the 95% just follow. And so you'll notice there hasn't really been much fence riding. It's either felt like it's all negative one week or two weeks and and it's all positive, and really all it is is a few people saying things that everyone else follows. Well, the GHSA, the Georgia High School Association, uh, this past week, depending on when you're listening, they voted to go ahead. They're going to delay their season two weeks, but they're going to open the season, and they plan on playing all 10 games, and that's a good thing. When you see universities talking about what capacity they can put in their stadiums, that's a good thing. When you see Alabama talking about replacing USC with Brigham Young or Notre Dame, that was the rumor, but BYU, you know how much I struggle with the Y there, BYU. That's a good thing when you're hearing those because what it does tell you definitively is the last thing in these people's minds is canceling a season. Like we're, we're in mid-July here. We're getting towards late July and they're hammering out finer details. So those are all good signs. And what you have to do is you have to understand what one sports reporter or what one political correspondent says on Twitter that gets uh, 1,100 retweets, what, you've, what phrase you see trending in the moment, it's not the end of the world. Twitter's not real life. I told you this a million times. It's not the end of the world. Quite frankly, I wish a lot of people in decision-making positions would divorce themselves from worrying about the ramifications they're going to deal with on Twitter and instead understand their real constituency is you. You're the ones who go into the stadiums. You're the ones who buy the merchandise. You're the ones who watch the games. You and the student athletes that are on the field and coaches, those are ultimately the people that they are accountable to, not sports writers, not people on TV. So it doesn't matter what a blue check mark says about you. 
make the best decisions for the people who you actually are answering to and are responsible to. And so I've just felt some good things, hearing things publicly, hearing some things privately. I feel like we're headed in a fairly good direction this week. Knock on the closest wood. Next up, Caleb on Twitter. I thought I'd let you know a cool story. I've been listening to your podcast for the last several months, and I'm a summer counselor at a camp in Maine. During my off time in my bunk, I was listening to the latest episode out loud, and the kids walked in and started listening. They all liked it, and now they want to listen to more. I thought I'd just let you know, having a little fun in the fan club in Maine now, keep up the good work. There was no question there. I just wanted to read that because that is indicative of so many comments you guys send me. I know I read the questions on the show, but I just wanted to read that to, number one, say shout out to all of our listeners in Maine, and secondly, say thank you to Caleb, and thirdly, to say thank you to all you guys who submit stuff like that. I read every one of them. I read every one of your emails, every one of your tweets, every one of your uh, submissions in the podcast review section. Every single one of them I read. Just because I don't acknowledge all of them because we don't have time doesn't mean I don't read them. So sincerely, thank you guys. And again, shout out to our friends in Maine. Go Black Bears. Scott, next up. Scott says, I understand criticism of Will Muschamp at South Carolina, but might we need to consider who he's gone up against? When he was at Florida, Florida State was in route to winning 48 games in a four-year stretch. At South Carolina, Clemson has averaged over 13 wins per season lately. Is it fair to attribute his lack of success to having a dominant rival? No, Scott, not really. I mean, I don't really think that it flies for Florida fans. I don't really think that it flies for Carolina fans because here is the retort that I would probably agree with. A Florida fan would say, what advantage did Jimbo Fisher have at Florida State? Do they have twice the revenue that we do? Do they have twice the facilities that we do? Do they have twice the longstanding tradition? In other words, what discernible advantage did they have? And if the answer is really none of the above, then the go-to for them, the option B would be they must have had a better coach. So absolutely, I'm going to criticize you because you weren't as good a head coach as the other guy. And it's the same here. If you're 10 years old, you might think that Clemson's the best program in the history of mankind and South Carolina is some also ran. But if you just rewind 10 years ago or less, it was South Carolina putting up the back-to-back-to-back double-digit win seasons. It was Clemson who hadn't done anything in a couple of generations as it relates to the national landscape. And so all that's happened is Clemson found the right head coach. And off of that hire and, well, elevation to head coach of Dabo Swinney, then that precipitates getting the quarterback, which gets the bigger recruiting classes, which wins championships, which gets the facilities. And now, yeah, it's an uphill battle. But at the same time, I mean, they play each other one time a year. It's not like they put an emotional wrecking on you that costs you against Kentucky. Or, you know, if you lose to Tennessee, that has nothing to do with Clemson. That has nothing to do whatsoever with Clemson. So I don't buy that, Scott. I'm not attacking you. I'm just saying I don't buy that. And I don't think those fan bases should either. Johnny, next up. Johnny says, I'm a Texas resident. My friends and family are all just itching for the Texas versus Texas A&M home and home series to kick back up. If it happens this year somehow, what would the impact be on recruiting in this state? I don't think it could hurt. I don't know maybe what unintended consequences or ramifications it would have, but let's just think this out loud for a second. Some of you follow recruiting religiously. Some of you don't, but here is the current state of affairs in Texas for the Longhorns. Tommy Brockermeyer and James Brockermeyer. That's 
a five-star offensive tackle and a four-star center, respectively. I think they are our top tackle and center in the 24-7 sports player rankings this cycle. Their dad played at Texas, just to give you an idea. They live in Texas. Their dad played at Texas. Both of them just committed to Alabama. And down the stretch, it wasn't even close. Those guys wanted a reason to go to Texas. Uh, They don't have one right now because the Longhorns haven't developed that position and Alabama has. Now, what does Texas A&M have to do with that? I don't necessarily know that it changes anything. But what I do know is it can't hurt. And what I do know is the state pride factor, you know, that you always grew up hearing about Texas football. Everyone grows up wanting to play and wanting to go to Austin or wanting to go to College Station. I don't feel that from Georgia. I don't feel that from Tennessee. And I'm talking about where I live, where I'm at most of the time. Over here, I don't feel that right now. You guys in Texas can tell me different, but you got a bunch of guys leaving that state right now. And I think while it wouldn't wholesale change it to play that game, what it would do is reignite that in-state rivalry, that in-state passion that's been missing for a few years now. And remember, you're not recruiting 40-year-olds. You're recruiting 18-year-olds. So only a few years ago, quote unquote, well, that's when they were in elementary school. So they have grown up not even feeling what you used to feel, Johnny, and what I used to feel watching that game. So yeah, I hope they crank it back up. Jeff, next up. Jeff says, with a deep year for in-state recruiting in Arkansas in 2022, what can the Hogs do to pass Vandy, Kentucky, Ole Miss, South Carolina, and maybe get into the top half of the conference? Well, I'll tell you the first key to me, Jeff is recruiting Texas, which Chad Morris was doing a pretty decent job of. The results just weren't showing on the field. But what I hope Sam Pittman can do there is keep his coaching staff together, which I think is going to be really hard. I think he put one of the most underrated staffs together in America. He got a lot of head coaching experience there, um, not including himself. He has got a really good makeup on his staff. The only thing that concerns me is if they do start to have some success, who else comes calling? Now, Arkansas, it's not like the Minnesota situation where the minute Minnesota started succeeding, Penn State comes and gets Kirk Scirocco. Arkansas is probably a little more competitive financially to keep guys in-house than, say, Minnesota would be able to, you know, respect to the rest of the Big Ten. But to get in the top half of the conference is a multi-year project. That roster at Arkansas right now is far away from being SEC caliber, from being top half SEC caliber. So there's no secret. There's no shortcut. You just recruit. And you said a good in-state crop, keeping those kids home a couple of cycles from now or one cycle from now, that would be a good start. Owen, next up, what steps does Auburn have to take to become a tier one program? Also, do you think Auburn should be paying Malzahn all this money only to have five wins versus top 10 opponents? Is it worth it just to beat Bama every other year? Short answer on the second part, yeah, it's worth it. Yes, it is absolutely worth it. You got to pay him relative to the challenge, and you got to pay him relative to market value. Now, remember what the circumstances were. You can't just look at this a couple of years later and forget the circumstances. 2017 is the year. It looks like he's going to get fired after they lose to LSU. He writes the ship. They beat number one Georgia at home. They beat number one Alabama at home, and he's gone from hot seat talk to beating number one twice in three weeks to end the year. They're going to Atlanta for the SEC championship. And that week, Malzahn and his agent put Auburn up against a wall and said, we want a new deal. We want it right now. Also keep in mind, at that very moment in time, Tennessee was a dumpster fire. 
They were a five-alarm cluster trying to find a coach. They'd been turned down 37 different times, at least if you believed all the reports. So Auburn Brass looked up in Knoxville and said, we got a guy who just beat number one twice in three weeks. We're going to Atlanta. We're very competitive. We either give him what he wants or he's going to walk because the third component was Malzahn had a massive offer from Arkansas, his home state, on the table. So they did the prudent thing. They paid him. They re-signed him. They extended his contract. That was the circumstance. And every one of us would have done the same thing. Having said that, you're asking, is it worth it just to beat Saban and Bama every other year? Who else has done that? Answer, nobody. You want to have a fun exercise? Outside of Gus Malzahn, count the number of SEC head coaches currently in the conference who have beaten Nick Saban. Have fun with that. And the only one who's done it just did it this past year. And his name is Edward Orgeron. Get the research department to find his middle name. As for the first part, what would Auburn have to do to become a tier one program? I'm going to be real with you. I'm not saying it's impossible. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen only because they are parked right smack dab in the middle of three, either tier one or bordering on tier one programs right now. They're three biggest rivals. Bama, certainly. Georgia, right there. LSU, right there. How much room do you have at the table? That wasn't the totality of college football. Those are all in their conference. There just aren't enough wins to go around for every one of those to be a tier one program. So I guess the short answer is they got to take one of those chairs from one of those other programs. That's what they'd have to do. Next up is Jackson. Can you do a mood tracker for Georgia Tech? I feel like our fan base covers a huge range. The pessimists think Paul Johnson's triple option offense was our only chance. The optimists think Jeff Collins will entirely rebrand us and return the program to glory. What Jackson's talking about in the Mood Tracker is a series we've been doing on Late Kick Live on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel, and I've done it by conference, and I've picked up, you know, mainly the, the most relevant currently programs in those conferences, and I've done the Mood Tracker, so I haven't done every program in every conference, and I did the ACC the other day, and I was going to do Tech, and we ran out of time. So the Georgia Tech current mood tracker, I think you would be fair to say unbridled optimism. There's a lot of energy. See, I feel exactly what you're talking about here, Jackson. You don't have to be, you don't have to be cautious with your optimism. I think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic. I've, I've called Georgia Tech the biggest sleeping giant program in America. I'm fully on board with the direction that Jeff Collins has taken the program. I'm fully on board with the rebranding strategy. And all he's doing really is what everyone always should have done at Georgia Tech which is realize, is you look out your office, oh, we're in downtown Atlanta. This place calls itself the capital of college football. It is the biggest recruiting hotbed, one of the biggest recruiting hotbeds in America. Everyone comes here to recruit. We're already here. We're a Power 5 program. We're in the middle of downtown. We're at the intersection of the ACC and the SEC. Why don't we matter in our own town? It's inexcusable. We got to change that. And we got to make kids realize that the heightened academic requirements to get in here are not some albatross around our program. It's an opportunity. And if you're capable, and believe me, enough quality football players per year are capable of getting into Georgia Tech academically. If you're capable, you set yourself up for life. They know it. Okay, I'm not telling them anything they don't already know. They understand they're putting a strategy in place right now. It takes a couple of years because they have to totally overhaul the roster, which they're in the process of doing. But once they do it, see, you'll look five years from now 
Georgia Tech football will matter nationally. It'll be well before five years, but I'm just saying safely, five years from now, Georgia Tech football will be a totally different animal than they have been in recent memory. I wanted to remind you guys as we move on here, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, and, or maybe last week it was, and I got a ton of submissions. I told you, I always get people asking me, normally you're in high school or maybe in college or just out of college, guys of, and girls of that age range, hit me up a lot and just ask anything from advice uh, on career paths to uh, help with this, help with that, just maybe a sounding board for their ideas. Well, I'm open to that. I always make myself available. And what I do is uh, when enough of you contact me every couple of weeks, I'll do a group Zoom session with you on my own time. That's not, we don't publicize it or broadcast it or anything. So anyone who wants to hop in on that, just hit me up, joshpate706 gmail.com, or you can find me on Twitter at LateKickJosh. But we got one coming up uh, about a week, week and a half from now. So just be aware if you want to get in on that, hit me up. Next up, Lucas. Once the Dabo Swinney era ends at Clemson, will they have cemented themselves as a blue blood program, or have they already? No, Lucas, they haven't already, but understand there's a difference in a tier one program and a blue blood program. A tier one program is in the moment. A blue blood program requires a lot of history to be on your side too. Think Alabama, think Ohio State, think Notre Dame, think USC. You just have to have done it for a long time. Clemson, it would take a long time to become one of those blue blood programs. Now that's more for having fun at your family reunion when you're sitting on the back porch and you're reminiscing about once upon a time, maybe up to and including where you are now, if you're an Alabama fan or an Ohio State fan. But that stuff doesn't matter quite as much as what tier you're in in the current moment. You know, Clemson's a tier one program right now. It doesn't matter what they were or weren't in 1987. But it is nice because this is a, a, a sport that is steeped in tradition and pageantry to be able to say that. So what would they have to do? They got to put together a run like they're doing now, but you got to do it in multiple decades. And it just obviously, by default of what a decade is, it takes a little while. Gators Are Stupid is back. And Gators Are Stupid asks, do you think Nick Saban in Alabama will ever decline from perennial national title contender status. No, I don't. As long as he's there, I truly do not. Have you guys seen what they're doing in recruiting right now? You remember we were talking about this about a month and a half, two months ago. I did a couple of segments on Late Kick when they were ranked in the 40s. They were ranked like 41st and 44. They were ranked in the 50s at one point in the team recruiting rankings. And I made the most obvious statement in the world to me, which was, don't worry. They'll come, and I thought that they would end up in the top five. Well, I actually got some comments that laughed at that. I don't know what in the world you guys were smoking, all four or five of you who commented that way. But here they sit now, number two in the team rank. They're going to make a serious push for the number one class in the country, which two or three months ago we thought was unheard of. Ohio State was running away with that thing. And I, the Buckeyes still may very well end up the overwhelming winner of the top class, but Bama is at least pushing them now. I say that to say this, they're not going anywhere. They just got the top quarterback in the country last year. They're signing, we're in the process of signing one of the best offensive line classes in history right now. The edge rusher class they brought in last cycle is insane. They've got a ton of former head coaches on their coaching staff all over the place. Like Charlie Strong's there, just stowed away. 
Butch Jones is there, just stowed away. Steve Sarkeesian's there. They are loaded in every way imaginable. They are breaking ground on a brand new locker room, sports science center right now. All the stuff you need to sustain, along with the head man himself, is there. No, they're not going anywhere. Chris, next up. You recently said Penn State needs an elite quarterback to take the next step, but I believe defense is the Achilles heel here. This unit has folded late in some big games. Now, I'm hopeful the increase in overall talent level changes it, but what do you see in their personnel compared to other top teams in college football? I don't see it this way, Chris. Um, Folding, you know, folding. Oklahoma folded defensively last year against LSU. To me, that's folding. I mean, that's getting truly bent over. Penn State's a very good defensive program. Now, what is elite defense today? Because I think what you'd find, going back to the point that I made that you pointed out, if you get a Justin Fields, Trevor Lawrence, Tua Tungavailoa type quarterback at Penn State, what you would find is it no longer requires you to be an impenetrable force defensively. You don't have to look like Paterno's vintage defenses of the late 70s. That's not what you have to look like anymore. You got to be opportunistic. You got to be really good in the red zone. You got to force turnovers. You can take more chances. You know, you can afford to give up some points every now and then because you're going to score them. But also, what happens is your offense, in a way, is a defense. You ever heard that saying before? And specifically, you put so much pressure on the opposing offense that it forces them to take more chances that ultimately you take advantage of their forced risk. And so Achilles heel or not, and you and I may disagree right now in maybe the caliber of defense they're playing there, I think it may come from you just holding them to a bit higher standard, which I totally understand than I do. But I think they're playing plenty good enough defense, and they've got superstar caliber players that have come through there, continue to be there now with a guy like Parsons. And so they recruit plenty well enough there. I love what they have a defensive coordinator. And if they ever get the right guy in there at quarterback and they get that offense rolling like hopefully Soraka will, then I don't think defense would be much of an issue anymore. A quick reminder as we move on here, one of those old-fashioned calls to action. Just a five-star review. That's all I'm asking for. Just a five-star review. And that concludes our call to action. Next up, Gators 15. Why do you think Florida struggles to recruit elite talent? Well, they don't have an elite recruiting staff. That's why. Now, I'll tell you what would go a long way in rectifying this, outside of just making new staff hires, is beating Georgia. Simple as that. Florida beats Georgia this year. I think you would see the tide turn to a certain degree. But I'll be honest with you. I don't think that they go heads up very well with Alabama, with Clemson, with Georgia, when Georgia comes into the state of Florida to recruit. I don't like the way they stack up there right now. And see, this goes back to that whole point a lot of people make about Dan Mullen versus Kirby Smart. A lot of people would tell you Dan Mullen is a better tactician. Dan Mullen is a better game day coach. Dan Mullen is a better you know, developer of quarterbacks. Like They'll give all these accolades. Dan Mullen once you are 17 to 17 late in the third quarter and games on the line and you can't recruit more players for the fourth quarter, Dan Mullen's going to beat you. That's great. I'm not necessarily arguing with any of that sentiment. There are degrees of truth to all of it. Recruiting is a massive part of who you are as a head coach in college football. It just is. If we were in the NFL, it wouldn't be. In college football, it is. 
If you're a great recruiter, then that matters a whole lot when it comes to how I compare you to a guy who historically has been maybe an average recruiter compared to the other elites out there. Like, Florida, don't get me wrong now. Florida recruits very well. They don't recruit at an elite level. They recruit at a good to very good level, which would be great if you were competing in the Big 12 or in the ACC, but you're not. There's sharks all over the place in the SEC, so you got to be one yourself. And if you're not that, and you're just counting on being able to out-scheme teams, that may get you some impressive wins, but it's not going to get you a season full of them. And that's what it takes to win an SEC championship. Carter E1. I don't expect, this Carter E1 is the poster, by the way. I don't expect elite quarterback play from Jared Garantano at Tennessee, but do you think he can take the next step to being an 8, 9, or 10-win level quarterback in year two under Cheney? Well, that was a pretty wide gap you gave me there, Carter. Eight wins? Yeah, I think they're capable of that with him. Ten wins? No, I don't think they're capable of that with him. So the truth probably lies somewhere in between. And ultimately, you know, if you're struggling to get to eight wins versus pushing for nine or ten wins, then I think every week we go further into this year, if Brian Maurer hasn't figured into the equation, then I think you start to hear Harrison Bailey's name whispered and then just openly spoken and then shouted. And I don't know that any time this year will be the right time for him, but no one would love to see Tennessee push for double-digit wins more than me because like Jared Garantano is a great guy. Sometimes when you speak about these kids and you say things that are perceived as negative, I just call it reality, it sounds like you're bashing them. I'm not bashing anyone. I can't remember the last time I bashed a college football player, and I'm not doing it now. However, the fact of the matter is some guys have limitations. Some guys have lower ceilings. And Jared Garantano has never struck me as a guy that is going to help Tennessee challenge for the SEC East. I don't see it that way. Would be happy to be proven wrong. Next up, Govals12 says, you talk a lot about being opposed to the college football playoff expanding, and so am I. But every argument I've heard you make against expansion could also be used in reverse to support returning to the two-team BCS system. So why is four the right number of teams? Or do you support the two-team model being the best? No, I like the expansion to four. I wouldn't have any problem using the BCS process to select those four teams. Wouldn't have any problem with that whatsoever. I thought the BCS did a fine job at more properly rating teams. I didn't have a problem with that. Uh, My whole thing about expanding past four, among several other reasons, is I have never seen a year where I thought the number five team had a legitimate argument that they were the best team, deserved to be ranked the number one team. And I have seen years where the number three team could make that argument. So if we were in a two-team format, 2004 comes to mind. You know, I grew up near Auburn. Auburn people will claim until the end of time that they were robbed, being 13-0, and they were robbed of a shot to play for a national championship the year that it was, I think, Southern Cal and Oklahoma. And Whether you think they would have beaten them or not is irrelevant. That was a really good team, loaded with future NFL guys. They didn't lose a game in a power conference, and they were denied an opportunity. That can't happen. That shouldn't happen. There's never been a fifth-ranked team that fit that qualification or criteria. There have been some very good teams that were left on the outside looking in. But check out every one of the resumes, 
and you'll see something that they allowed to happen to themselves. Ohio State comes to mind. They've been left out a couple times. And you'll have some inexplicable blowout loss against Purdue or Iowa. You're not going to sit there and tell me you deserve to be in anything that should be, res- it should be reserved, should be very exclusive. You don't belong to be in any club. Don't care how talented your roster is. You don't belong in a club that is reserved for elite when you have that kind of blemish on your resume. You do belong in there if you're in a Power 5 conference without a blemish on your resume like Auburn was in 2004. So I think four is the right number. I wouldn't have any problem with the BCS formula. But see, I think the committee's done a good job at selecting the field. I, don't, I have not had a year where I thought they made an inexplicable error in judgment. I know I get argument on that, but I've gone back and forth with you guys, and I've spoken my logic through to a conclusion that I feel comfortable resting on. But yeah, that's a good question there. I think that's something we could go more in depth on in the future. Next up, Matthew on Twitter. Do you like having divisions in conferences? I personally really like the Big 12 having no divisions, and everyone just plays everyone. This helps avoid the argument over who you played in the cross-division matchups and arguments that one division is better than another in a conference. And you're right, Matthew. Yeah, in a perfect world, I would love to see everyone play everyone round-robin format. Now, you and I both know there's a reality in the Big Ten, in the ACC, and the SEC that we don't have in the Big 12. The first thing that I tell a new college football fan is forget the names of the conferences. Because the Big 10 has 14 teams and the Big 12 has 10 teams and none of it makes sense. Well, we got some conferences out here with 14 teams, 13 if you don't count yourself, and you can't play everybody. So I don't know how we would go about structuring that schedule. Not to mention the fact that you only play eight or nine conference games to begin with. So in a perfect world, yet yeah, it's nice to be able to play everyone. And you don't have to worry about divisions. But when you have the structure that these bigger conferences do, I think divisions are just the smartest way to go about structuring your season, crowning two division champs, playing your conference championship game, and that's in lieu of a perfect counter. Greg on Twitter, I know you've already talked about the most hostile stadiums, but I'm curious, what was the loudest and the most intense moment covering a game down on the field? Me personally, LSU versus Alabama 2014, the reaction to Yeldon's fumble late in the fourth quarter was by far the craziest scene I've ever witnessed. Greg on Twitter. Boy, Greg, this is a good question. And I'll tell you one that comes to my mind. I've been at a lot of big ones, and maybe I'm just trying to overthink the room here. Because, I mean, I've, I've been there for some big, big moments. But there was a game so random. It was Tennessee under Butch Jones at Alabama. And they went in there, and Alabama's big favorite over Tennessee. And... It was a close game. At fourth quarter, Tennessee's got the ball. They had the opportunity to put a drive together to win the game. I want to say the final was like 19 to 14 or something like that. And uh, Josh Dobbs, I think, was the quarterback. I, I think this is right. Could be wrong, though. But what I know is Alabama batted a pass, and I think it just fell into Ashawn Robinson's hands or there was a fumble. Alabama forced a turnover near their own goal line and preserve the win, and boy, and that's a rivalry. Hasn't been a rivalry on the field lately to an outside observer, but there is full-blown hatred between those two fan bases. And if you know the history, you know why. And man, that place came unglued. And I remember I was covering the game with someone, and I was explaining the 
Tennessee-Bama rivalry to that person on the way to the stadium that afternoon or that morning. And they were saying, no, uh, because all they've seen is Bama dominate Tennessee. Well, then they looked at me and said, whoa, I never expected this place to sound like this for this game of all games. This isn't the Iron Bowl. This isn't Alabama versus LSU. And then I had that grin on your face. And those one or two times per year that you're right on something, I had that grin on my face. Let's see. Next up, we'll go with Epic College Football on Twitter. Do you ever think the committee has selected what most view as the four most deserving teams rather than the true four best teams? While I might be in the minority here, I truly believe Georgia was one of the four best teams in 2018 and 19, but got left out at that unfortunate number five spot in favor of a conference champion, Oklahoma. Just wanted your thoughts on this. You know, this is the difference between merit and true power rating. The question I get all the time when I tell you that I don't support auto bids of any kind, I just support taking the most deserving teams, the immediate follow-up someone says is, okay, well, if you're just going to take the best teams, then why do they even need to play the games? Just look at the recruiting rankings, find who has the best roster, and take those teams. And that's where I have to stop you. I never said take the best teams. I say take the most deserving teams. So then your counter to that would be, okay, what is deserving? And my answer is, it's a blend of power and merit. I do care how good your roster is. I do care where a Vegas odds maker would power rate you. But I also care equally what you've done on the football field. And what you've done on the football field sometimes eliminates you from the playoff, even though you may be better, even though I may favor you on a neutral field against a team I'm going to put in the playoff. And you're right. You're absolutely right to point out Georgia those couple of years. Because yes, Georgia, you know, in one of those years, they would have been a touchdown plus favorite over that Notre Dame team that went on to play Clemson. They certainly would have been. But I didn't support Georgia being in. And believe me, it would have greatly benefited me for Georgia to be in that playoff. So if I were selfish or being a homer in any case, I would have wanted Georgia to be in. But I had to be honest about it. Georgia didn't belong in. And it was self-inflicted. You know, remember that year. Remember those years. That 2018 season, for example, this is a year right after Georgia lost in overtime in the national championship game. So they're on everyone's radar. And they went to LSU. They didn't just lose at LSU. They got spanked down there. I think it was 36 to 16 was the final. And then they went to the SEC championship game and they lost to Alabama. But the thing about it is, I believe they may have been in the playoff even if they lost that game to Alabama had they not been blown out against LSU. You don't have to beat them, just don't get blown out by them. And so that was what cost Georgia. That loss to LSU cost Georgia. And so I didn't have any problem with that. So yeah, I think the committee, like I said earlier in the podcast, I think they've done the right thing at every single turn. And I was very fearful when we shifted to this format that we were going to have situations where preference was given to just the team with the best record in lieu of using some common sense and understanding strength of schedule and using your eyeballs instead of just paper. But so far, so good to me. And we're, what, seven years into this thing now. So I've been happy so far. Aaron on Twitter asks, I was wondering if you could potentially talk a bit about what you think Jimmy Lake will do as the head coach at Washington. I'm a big Husky fan, and I'm interested to see how you think we'll do the next few seasons. Aaron, it's a blind spot for me. This, this new hire, well, it's not a new hire. It's an elevation. It's a promotion. It's kind of a blind spot for me. The same way, in certain ways, the same way that 
Jeremy Pruitt being hired at Tennessee was. Here's what I mean. When you look everywhere else, every pivot that's being made, every program alteration that's being made is being done to yield to offense. And that's not necessarily what they've chosen to do at Tennessee. They're hiring a defensive head coach there in in Jeremy Pruitt or at Washington. They have chosen Jimmy Lake, an internal hire, but the defensive coordinator. And so naturally, it's not a a pessimistic outlook. It's just a cautious wait-and-see approach. And I think a lot of people in Washington feel the same way. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I've had some of you guys in our comment section. And so sometimes in the email, especially, I'll go back and forth. And so I've asked some people, I've asked a couple of people who cover Washington, what do you expect? And they've kind of said the same thing I just did. They don't really want to take a stand on it because they don't have a strong feel one way or the other. I'd tell you, if I had a strong feel, if I thought Jimmy Lake was just about to alter fundamentally the, the style of uh, Pac-12 football or Pac-10 football, whatever you want to call it, I still stick on Pac-10, then I would say it. But I don't know that I feel that yet. And you have something to overcome at Oregon, too. So that's a game I really look forward to this year. Really look forward to it. Samar on Twitter, what do you think of the culture of college football in the Pacific Northwest? College football is a religion in the South. It's huge in the Midwest, but I've always thought it was underrated in Oregon and Washington. Do you think there is a passionate fan base up there that is fully invested, as you like to say, and could support a national title winning program? Absolutely, I do. Jim Halpert, the office. Absolutely, I do. Yeah, I think that. I think that maybe, I think that maybe the, the pool, shall we say, of all-in fans is not as big as it would be in the South, but it's plenty big enough. Trust me, it's plenty big enough. So yes, to answer your second question, they could support a national title-winning program up there. It's about getting the players up there. They don't lack fan support at Washington. They don't lack fan support at Oregon. The players, you got to get the players because understand where we're at right now in the Pac-12 and in West Coast football in general. Right now, there's a big difference. Oklahoma has found this out in the Big 12, actually. There's a big difference in winning your conference, being good enough to win your conference, and being good enough to win in the playoff. See, Oklahoma has been good enough to win their conference. They just got boat raced in the playoff. So being good enough to do one thing may still live a wide gap between being good enough to do the next thing. What is it in the Pac-12? How far do you have to go past being good enough to win the Pac-12 to being good enough to win in the college football playoff if you get there? All right, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, I know this one really sparks a lot of conversation. We got Sims on Twitter with one of those good old-fashioned arguments between he and a friend that he wants me to moderate. Which conference is deeper? Which one's better at the top? Which one's better at the mid-level? Oh, so juicy. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, we're back here. And as I said, Sims on Twitter has a question slash statement in no particular order here. My friend and I debate about the Big Ten versus the SEC all the time. He's a Nebraska fan. He claims the SEC is better, but the Big Ten is just barely behind. 
He claims Wisconsin is on the same level as Georgia. He also says the Big Ten has more depth. I argue the SEC is head and shoulders above the Big Ten, but the Big Ten also has some teams like Minnesota who are capable of hanging with good teams a couple games out of the year, but they'll never compete for playoff spots like five teams in the SEC could any given year. What are your thoughts? Let's unpack this. I think the SEC is very deep right now, so I don't view it as particularly comparable. Here's where the best measure is. It's not always this way, but here's where I think the best measure is right now. And this is why I kind of, I'm going to get really sidetracked here if I'm not careful. So let me, let me carefully craft my response. Sometimes people love to use bowl results as a definitive measurement of conference superiority, and I've never believed in that. The only way that I would believe in using bowl head-to-head matchups between conferences to gauge conference superiority is if you lined up the seeds. If the number three team in the SEC played the number three team in the Big Ten, if number six in the Pac-12 played number six in the Big 12, then we'd learn a lot. But sometimes you got the number two team from one conference playing the number six team from another conference. What does that prove to me? Of course your number two should beat my number six. Uh, The only thing we would have to be concerned about is if the opposite happened. So I've never cared about that. But here's what I would do for this little exercise. I would line the teams up and I would say, who's at the top? And You could probably put Alabama, Ohio State, and those are very comparable programs. So let's call that a wash. Well, then you get in trouble if you're trying to defend the Big Ten because right now, where are you going? We're going LSU, number two. What are we doing? LSU against Michigan? We're doing Georgia against Penn State? Is that what we're doing? I think we know which way most people are leaning. And let's take SEC and Big Ten fans out of it. Let's just use neutral observers. I mean, if you're a fan of Arizona, and I'm giving you an option between uh, LSU and Michigan, programs, LSU and Michigan, I'm I'm letting you choose Georgia or Penn State. Where are you going? I think nine times out of ten, you're probably leaning SEC on both of those. And listen, Wisconsin and Georgia, the comparison there, a lot of people, I compared this a couple of weeks ago, actually, in, a, in a kind of a, another format, but a lot of people in the South love Wisconsin. They really respect their style of play. They respect Wisconsin's style of play because it reminds them of the way that SEC football used to be played. But the problem is the roster at Wisconsin does not remotely compare to the roster at a place like Georgia. That's not comparable. And if they were to meet in, let's say, a regular season setting, I think it would probably look a lot like Notre Dame-Georgia. Those were close games. They've played recently, and they've both been close games, but at the same time, when you watch them, you understand who's in control of the game the entire time. And they understand what the limitations on the other side are offensively, so therefore they play it conservatively, really close to the vest. Bottom line, I think the answer is the SEC right here. Gavin on Twitter, next up, where do you believe is the toughest head coaching job, available or not, in all of FBS? I've answered this recently, and I get a lot of pushback on it. I just don't think people listen to my qualifications. My qualifications are not, where is it the hardest to win? Because if that were the answer, then we'd just say Vanderbilt. You know, I mean, we would say just programs that have no shot. Northwestern. Northwestern's not winning the Big Ten. Vandy's not winning the SEC, but no one expects them to. Where do you find the most volatile mixture of reality versus expectation? And to me, the answer is absolutely Auburn University. And it really has nothing to do with where I grew up. It just so happens that the program I grew up closest to geographically is the answer here. And it goes back to this. 
I don't care how much the head coach makes. Malzahn makes $7 million a year. He could make $70 million a year. And my answer would still be Auburn because of the expectation there. The expectation is SEC championship college football playoff contention. You are competing against Alabama at the height of the greatest dynasty in the history of the sport. Your number two rival, Georgia, is on the precipice of a championship. Your number three rival, LSU, just won the national championship. Your number four, if you can go that deep, I, let's just say it's Texas A&M, who just invested $75 million on a head coach in Jimbo Fisher, who has won a national championship, by the way, over you. Look around you at Auburn. Think about in any given year down the stretch until they just changed the schedule, the landscape, the makeup of Auburn's schedule. They had Georgia and Alabama at the very end of the year. That's two top five caliber teams. If they were to make it through that, they go to Atlanta for the SEC championship game. That's a third top five caliber team you'd have to play. If you make it through all that, you go to a semifinal game. That's four in a row, top five caliber. And then you play in a national championship game. To win a championship at Auburn over the last several years, you will have had to play five top five caliber teams over a six-week span to end the season to win a national championship. Who's doing that? Nobody's doing that. It's an insanely hard job. We talk about this a lot, by the way, on the uh, 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. It's free. Subscribe there. It's free. Michael on Twitter. Oh, you know what, Michael? Michael asked something about Dan Mullen and Kirby Smart. Michael, I'm going to push that one to a Late Kick Live episode this week. Maybe Thursday, maybe Sunday. But that's going to be on a show this week. Next up, Andrew the Fanboy asks, How much of a player's technique, coverage, blocking, tackling, falls on coaching? How much of it is talent? In other words, can you indict a coordinator or a position coach for poor technique? Absolutely you can. There's a big difference between talent and skill, just as there's a big difference between a stack of wood and a finished house. You can have all the material. Well, it doesn't matter if no one knows how to build something with it. So the best coaching staffs, they have to do several things. They have to go get the talent. They have to get the materials. But then they have to be able to build with the materials. If you just get all the materials and then you look around and say, all right, what do we do with this stuff? I don't know. You don't know. We don't know. Well, then, you know, you're going four and eight with a bunch of talent. Well, you got to be able to develop it. So talent development, player development, I mean, that's, that's every bit as much the name of the game as getting the talent in order to develop it. So yeah, absolutely. I don't know who else poor technique would fall on. The problem, as I had it explained to me one time by a head coach, the problem that they had once upon a time with their staff, I'm not telling you who it is, but he told me, you know, I hired a lot of recruiters to get my program off the ground. But then I looked around and realized I didn't have teachers. I just had recruiters. I had a bunch of guys who were hoping and praying that the players knew how to play. They knew all the fundamentals. They knew everything from an execution standpoint when they got here because they didn't know how to do anything other than tell them what to do. You know, I can tell you, um, do this, do that. If I can't teach you how to do it and you don't already know how to do it, we're in big trouble. There's a big difference between telling someone to do something and showing someone how to do something. It's a good question. Robert, next up, how do high school recruits in hotbeds such as Florida, Texas, California, and Georgia become such good athletes? And what do states like New York, who are not known for producing a ton of great football players, have to do in order to get there or get on the path? Robert, I don't think it's in the cards for a state like New York. And the reason uh, is very simple. There are just different priorities in the state of Texas or Georgia or Florida than there are in New York. If you grew up in New York, you know, if you grew up in Brooklyn, for example, 
there are certainly exceptions to the rule, but you are playing basketball in all likelihood. If you're an athlete there and you're, you're starring in something, you're an elite athlete, chances are you're going the basketball route. Whereas if you grow up in Vidalia, Georgia, and you're an elite caliber athlete, you may play basketball, but you're more likely to go the football route. And it's all about priorities in those communities. And there's nothing wrong with either way. You trust me, you can make a ton of money either way. But the second part is there aren't as many athletes in places that you would think there would be because it's a higher population. And a whole lot of stuff goes into that. There have been a lot of studies done on that sort of thing. It's just priority. It's just culture uh, that has a lot to do with it. And they're just more players. You know, if you have a group of 500 kids from the state of Florida and you bring me a group of 100 kids from the state of New York, I'm probably going to have more athletes in the state of Florida than New York simply because I had a bigger sample size there. So it's, it's nothing you have to think too deeply on. It's just if you've been around those places, you start to understand it. Next up, Josh on YouTube. As someone from Scotland and my first sport being the other kind of football, I grew up with a division set up based on promotion and relegation from higher divisions to lower and vice versa. If the NCAA decided to do this for college football and had to create their divisions, what 20 teams would you have in the top division to start off with? Oh boy. Okay, here we go. Are we ready? Our top division of college football. From the SEC, I would put Alabama in there. I'd put Auburn in there. I'd put LSU. I would put Texas A&M. I'd put Georgia and Florida. Tennessee, we're going to give you a two-year window. We're not going to start this format until 2023, and it's your choice as to whether you're coming along in the top division. You have the capability, but you're not there right now. Clemson is the lone participant from the ACC. We're putting Ohio State in from the Big Ten. Michigan, Penn State, I think I'm going to throw you in there as well. But I would like you to make my choice a little bit safer and easier, but you're both in there. From the Pac-12, I'm putting Oregon and only Oregon in. From the Big 12, I am putting Oklahoma and only Oklahoma in. Texas, your call. You're on the clock there. Notre Dame would be in this as well. That is my top tier, not tier one, not true tier one, but top tier for the purpose of structuring the sport that Josh asked me to do for college football right now. Jonas on YouTube, great name in late kick world, terrible name in the movie Twister. I have heard you mention how you believe Florida needs to improve their recruiting to become a truly elite program. As a Florida fan, I agree. What do you think Florida needs to do? I think we kind of answered this earlier. Win games, firstly, and what comes first, chicken or the egg? What comes first, recruiting elite athletes or winning to get the elite athletes? Well, I don't know. Let's try a little bit of both. Florida has a good enough roster to beat Georgia this year. If they beat Georgia this year, I think they start winning a lot more recruiting battles. So I think, in, like I said earlier, in lieu of making staff changes, you just have to win games. You have to show kids we are capable of doing everything here that you claim you want to do. Right now, if I am a kid who has Dan Mullen coming in my living room and Nick Saban, for instance, coming in my living room, you cannot rightly look me in the eye and say, we're doing everything here they're doing there. But if you start to beat Georgia and then go to the SEC championship game and at least get yourself in that conversation, then you can convince me, hey, we may not have that crystal football or whatever they give out now on our trophy case from the last few years, but we're right there. One or two more elite athletes like you could push us over the, uh, push us over the top. And I would buy that. AJ, next up. What needs to happen 
for group of five teams to feel like they're even in the same division as the Power Five schools. Ever since the playoff came to fruition, it almost feels like bowl games have lost their luster. I feel like the college football ecosystem has failed these schools, frankly. AJ, tough love coming here. I don't think that the ecosystem has failed them at all. The college football ecosystem has sustained them. What do I mean by that? Well, I think we may be about to find out. You are never equal to an entity that subsidizes your existence in their world. Right now, the group of five, my whole take on that is the group of five relies on paychecks that they get from a lot of Power Five schools in order to exist, financially in order to exist. I am never worried about whether they are viewed as being on an equal plane. The G5 is not equal to the Power Five. It's not an imaginary line of demarcation. There are different worlds that these kinds of schools exist in. And right now, you've got a lot of G5s that are very worried if the schedule gets altered this year, they're going to lose their Power 5 games that they cash a paycheck to play. And you're talking about a lot of Group of 5 programs just folding or worried about folding if they miss one year of being able to play those Power 5 teams. Power 5s aren't worried about that. It's because they live in a different world. You don't have to like it. I know you don't like it. But I'm telling you, this conversation about this perceived inequality, it is inequality. They are not equal. The G5 is not equal to the Power 5. Uh, if anyone tells you otherwise, then they're fooling you. They are kidding you. I got a little worked up there. Don't know why. Fry Daddy, next up. How would you feel about expanding the playoff? Oh, Fry, why do you do this to me? All right, he continues. How do you feel about expanding the playoff this year to eight teams, and especially so if we play conference games only? I believe with the COVID-19, it would affect a team or two with a deserving record that might be on the outside looking in. Why not take this year and use it as a test run for the future? Fry, as I told you last week, I am absolving myself from this. I understand the merits here. It does make sense to me. And so if we do it, I'll go along with it. And what I think will happen is I think that we'll get a bunch of blowouts in the first round that will further prove my point. Knowing all the while that even if we have competitive games, it doesn't shoot my point down by any stretch. But I think my point would be validated. OJ asks, good name there, by the way, OJ. What are some teams that are right on the cusp of being in the tier one, except for Georgia because no one cares about them? Well, that was classy. I don't think there is anyone. We had a kind of a version of this question last week. I don't think there's any other program that is right on the cusp of jumping into tier one. Penn State and Michigan come to mind, but I think that they're a little bit further than being on the cusp. There are some things that have to happen at both those programs that I don't necessarily know could happen over the span of just one season. And to me, that's what being on the cusp would mean. Peter, next up, I graduated from Missouri the year before they moved from the Big 12 to the SEC. So the whole thing is still a bit foreign to me. My days there were Chase Daniels, Jeremy Macklin, the glory days under Gary Pinkle, and I kind of miss playing those Big 12 teams. We've had some success thus far, but what do you make of the program's trajectory with the new coach? Odom was a great DC, but it was time for a change, though I'm not sure if Eli Drinkwitz is a bit green or not ready for the conference yet. Peter, I have a great big question mark over Missouri. Drinkwitz is a guy who, if you talk to coaches, they all speak highly of him. Um, I, I've heard him speak a few times. Nothing really jumped out to me, but 
winning the press conference does not equate winning football games. I think we've learned that very recently in uh, spectacular fashion elsewhere, and not at Missouri. Uh, the thing about Missouri that you the point you made here is they don't fit. They don't feel like they fit in the SEC. It's just like Nebraska and the Big Ten. I'd much rather Nebraska still be in the Big 12. And I understand why the moves are made, and financially it has very much benefited both of those programs. But Missouri, if you really believe the name of the game is winning on the offensive and defensive lines here, I don't know how Missouri consistently competes with who they have to compete against. And that's understanding for a little while there when Craig Kuligowski was up there as the defensive line coach. They were pumping out some serious dudes on the defensive line. But that well eventually dried up, and it hasn't repopulated. And, I mean, if you, to be honest, if you saw Missouri win a head-to-head recruiting battle against LSU for a premier defensive lineman, what would you think? That would be so noteworthy because it sounds so out of the realm of possibility. And you got to win a bunch of them like that. So if you don't do it like that, how are you going to find a way around that? And that's the challenge for any head coach, Drinkwitz or anyone else, at Missouri now and in the future. A quick reminder, those five-star reviews, third and I promise last time, I'm asking you for it today. And all that does, again, is it helps us gain more traction in the algorithmic portions of these podcast, different podcast channels, wherever you happen to listen. I know I'm really talking about Apple. That's really where you leave the five-star reviews, the written reviews. But I acknowledge every one of you. <laughs> Certainly, I acknowledge every one of you. Tani gives me a nice, shiny multicolored pie chart every week so I know exactly who's listening and where they're listening from. And I don't care if you're listening on a phone or through a tomato can with a wire attached to it. Thank you so much. And again, we got a shout out earlier this week in the national Zoom meeting that I pass right along to you because it was because of you. So thank you for that. And a reminder, you can catch us on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel for Late Kick Live every Thursday night and Sunday night at 8 Eastern, 7 Central. And hey, by the way, I don't think I've mentioned this, and I probably should. We will very soon be shifting to the three nights per week format once we get into the season, or very close to the season. So that means Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday. But shh, that's just between us right now. We're not ready to make that move quite yet. Until next time, for Tani, I am Josh Bate. Have a great rest of the week. God bless. Take care. Thanks for listening.